0: invite you to open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, as we continue in this magnificent book and chapter, Romans chapter 8. It strikes me this morning, this is a sort of a mundane Sunday morning in many ways, right? Uh, Probably 10 years, five years from now, a year from now, you might not remember this morning, and yet I'm convinced that when we get to heaven and look back over the highlights of our life... It won't be the things that we think about generally. It won't be a great vacation you had. It, uh, it, it, I, I don't think it's even going to be your wedding day, as wonderful as, as, that, as that will be. I think the things that we'll be most excited about and thankful for when we get to heaven are Sunday mornings like this, where week after week God gathered us together and continued his work of saving us and uh, making us ready and fit for uh, eternal, our eternal home. And so let's, as we come to the Word again this morning, just have a sense of the, the incredible value uh, that that rests on this, the, and the wonderful privilege that we have to be uh, together as the family of God, uh, gathered by God Himself with His Word open in front of us. And I encourage you to keep your Bible open this morning, as we're going to be doing some very specific uh, work as we actually do it together. Let me begin reading uh, Chapter Eight, Romans, Chapter Eight, Verse One. We'll read through Verse Four. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that, those few verses are just jam-packed with rich, rich gospel truth that Lord willing will unpack this morning. Let's ask for his help. Well, Father, we now come and we trust that you've given us the Holy Spirit exactly so that we can understand the things given to us and done for us by the Father through Jesus Christ. And so we just ask for the Spirit now to give, uh, open our ears and hearts so that we can receive and be blessed and benefited greatly by this gospel truth. In Jesus' name amen. Back in 1961, uh, President Kennedy gave, uh, in his inaugural address, uh, a a plea to Americans uh, to get more involved uh, and to be more socially conscious. And, And so what he said was, quote, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you Ask what you can do for your country. It makes for good social polity. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. However, it makes for lousy Christian theology. The the Christian life, the crucial question of the Christian life, the crucial question is not what can I do for God, the crucial question is what has God done for me? What has God done for me? You see, the the Christian faith is at its essence centered around what God has done rather than what we must do. This principle makes the Christian faith the polar opposite of every man-made religion because every man-made religion will be earnestly telling you what you need to do, what you must do, the lifestyle and the practices that you must adopt in order to make yourself worthy in whatever way uh, that religion would understand it. Uh, it is incessantly oriented around what we must do, whereas the gospel and the Christian faith, then, is, is constantly orient us toward what God has done. Unfortunately for Christians, uh, we, we tend to forget this, and when we, when we think of the Christian lifestyle, we, we easily resort to thinking of the things that we must do. So we, we all recognize we are saved by grace. It's not of ourselves. Uh, and even the faith we have as a gift of God, we're, that's how we're saved. But when it comes to living the Christian life, we tend to, to think about the things that we ought to be doing for God, ought to be doing better for God. We ought to be reading our Bibles more. We should be praying more. We ought to be more generous. We ought to be more patient and kind and loving. Uh, we ought to um, be reforming our lives. We should be talking to our neighbors. There's a, just a list of things that we that we ought to be doing. And no one could argue Otherwise, we, we ought to be doing these things. However, uh, when that is how you think about the Christian life, well, it's why so many Christians uh, feel sad or even depressed about their Christian life, why so many Christians feel like a failure in their Christian life and, and do not live with the joy and the peace that God promises to us. You see, what if the, uh, what if the core of the Christian life was not about performing but was actually about receiving. Receiving. What if the essential things are not the things that you are trying to do, but the things that God has already done and the things that God is currently doing and the things that God promises to do for you? What if believing those things and receiving them was the essence of the Christian life? You see, as Paul says in Romans 15, 13, that the God of all hope fills us with all joy and peace, not by doing, but by believing, by receiving. Now, of course, as I said, there there are things that we ought to do. We ought to pray, and we ought to, to be in the Word, and we ought to obey God. But all of those things, you see, are actually gifts of God to us, and things that He promises to work within us, as Paul says in Philippians 2.13, that God works in us both to will, desire, and to do according to His good pleasure. God is at work in us to that end. So that we, we need to constantly remember that we are not only justified by the grace and power of God, but we are also sanctified by the grace and power of God. That justification is an act of God, as our catechism says, and sanctification is a work of God, but both are equally of God. One is by faith, the other is by the Spirit, but both the faith and the Spirit are gifts that God gives. So that, you see, the life of a child of God is not meant to be a life of unending disappointment as we uh, we realize we're failing to reach a certain standard, but it's meant to be a life of joy and peace as we receive day by day by day God's gifts of justification and sanctification as we enjoy His gift of faith and his gift of the Holy Spirit. That's living in the gospel, and, and that is what the Christian life then is meant to look like. And so this morning, we're going to focus on what has God done? What has God accomplished for you? Well, Paul tells us that very specifically. Verse 3, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And so we're just going to look at what God has done, and then why God has done it. What has God done? Well, He's done what the law couldn't do. What then could the law not do? Well, we've been through that in Romans chapter 7, but just quickly review. The law could not justify us or sanctify us. The law cannot um, give us the, uh, the ability to make ourselves right with God so that we can receive the sentence of righteous and innocent. As Paul says, right? No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, no one. So the law is not able, it could not free us from the sentence of condemnation. Instead, it pronounces the sentence of condemnation. But the law, it can't justify us, nor can it sanctify us. It cannot make us better, more holy, more righteous people. Uh, Paul explains that in Romans 7. It can't can't change the problem with us, and the problem with us is is that uh, the the flesh dwells within us, and and the flesh desires what is evil. It desires the wrong thing, and the law can't fix that. The law can't make us lovers of God. It can't make us doers of good. It's powerless to save us in in that way. In, In fact, The law would then be opposed to us. It condemns us. And and why is that the problem? Why is the law unable? Why can't it do these things? And Paul says in the the text here, well, it was weakened by the flesh. Again, we've been over this. But, But there was nothing wrong with the law itself. The law is good and holy and perfect, but there's something wrong with us. And what's wrong with us, the law can't fix. The law just doesn't have the ability, doesn't have the power to, to give us the, us the ability to honor God and obey God and, 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 and do what is pleasing to Him. So John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, great Puritan preacher, came up with this little rhyme. You've probably heard it before. Run, John, run, the law demands. Right, get it done. Make it happen. Do this, do this, do this. Run John run. The law demands but gives me neither feet nor hands. Doesn't give me any ability. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. The gospel, you see, empowers and enables us to do what was formerly impossible. The law doesn't have the power because it's weakened by the flesh. So, what the law could not do, Paul says, God has done. Well, what specifically has God done in the text? Well, He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. There are four things, if you're taking notes, four things just to take out and chew on for a moment and to taste the sweetness of them because there's four wonderful truths here that, that um, will help us understand and, and cherish this, this sentence. Notice, uh, he sent his own son. Who is Paul referring to in he and his? Well, he's referring to the Father. He's speaking of God the Father. And Paul wants us to see the astounding love of God the Father. God the Father did what the law could not do because God the Father sent His Son, His own Son. God the Father did that. Did not send an angel, didn't send one of the cherubim or one of the seraphim, didn't send Gabriel, not Michael. He sent His Son. He so loved the world that He gave His Son. And and that's the mystery of the gospel. Why would the Father do that? Why would God the Father so love the world that He would give His own Son? I think most of us find it difficult to be nice to people who uh, despise us. Uh, it's hard to be nice to people who, you know, maybe cut you off on the, on the expressway. Uh, people who are just mean to you at work uh, or at, at school. Boys and girls, isn't it hard to be nice when, when people just pick on you and are bullies to you? Well, we. We find it difficult to be nice and to respond in love to them, even though we know in truth that in our flesh we're no different than they are. We're just like them in our flesh. We can be bullies, and we're, we, we know that sometimes we're unkind and we say mean things, and yet God the Father, being perfectly holy and just, and, and having the whole world despise Him, yet the Father loves the world, and loves the world not just with an, a fond affection, but what the love of the Father is an act where He calls His Son, and He sends His own Son to come and die. That's the astounding love and the, and the sovereign act of, of God that, that forms the original, incomprehensible, and yet determinant reason for our salvation, the love of God. That's what the Scripture writers will go to over and over, over and over. See what love the Father has loved us. And so that's the first thing. We just need to see God the Father sent the Son. It's precious. It's beautiful. It's astounding. And, and, and see the unique, the unique nature of the Son. Paul writes this very carefully. If you, if you have your Bible open, notice Paul doesn't say that Jesus came in the likeness of flesh. Because if he said Jesus came in the likeness of flesh, it would imply that Jesus looked like man, but wasn't really a man. That was the error of the, the docetists in the early church, that Jesus just seemed to be a person, but he wasn't truly man. And so, but Paul doesn't say in the likeness of flesh, nor does he say that Jesus was born in sinful flesh. Because if he said Jesus was born in sinful flesh, that would imply that Jesus was just like us in every way, including sin. I like how Stott summarizes it. He says, "...the Son came neither in the likeness of flesh, only seeming to be human, for his humanity was real, nor in sinful flesh, assuming a fallen human nature, for his humanity was sinless." but in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh, because his humanity was both real and sinless simultaneously. That's the beauty and the unique nature of Christ, both human, fully human, and yet without sin. And it is essential that Jesus be just this, in the likeness of sinful flesh in order to die in our place and accomplish our salvation. And and that's what Paul means when he has this little phrase, for sin, right? That, That God sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. It points to the essential work of Christ, the essential work of Christ, for sin is shorthand for the sacrifices, the, the sacrifice of Christ. We know this because it, this is the very phrase that is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language, and the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint um, that was that used this exact phrase to refer to the sin offering you find in the book of Leviticus and Numbers. And so for sin is shorthand for the sacrifice, the sin offering sacrifice. And Paul says that's exactly why Jesus came. That's why God sent his son, to be an offering for sin. This is this is a message we just need to keep honing because there's so much confusion in the world of why did Jesus come? Some think he came as a, as a social justice worker, some think he came as a moral reformer, some think he came to be sort of a therapeutic uh, coach or a life coach of some sort and, and just help you to be your best version of yourself. And there's all sorts of people preaching Jesus this way, or Jesus is the sort of the trap door that opens up the health and wealth that you can have. And, and, and because of Jesus, right? All the material blessings. Well, well, none of those things are according to Scripture. This is why he came. As Jesus himself said, right? The Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Paul wants us to see God the Father in astonishing love sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be nailed to a cross as a sacrifice to take away our sin, and in that, condemning sin in the flesh. And that's the fourth thing you want to see, the accomplishment. He condemned sin, God the Father condemned sin in the flesh through the sacrifice of His Son. Now, remember this chapter began with, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And, and the question that immediately will, will arises, why not? Why is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? And the answer is, because in the sacrifice of His own Son, the Father has condemned our condemnation. He's condemned our condemnation. One of the, uh, my favorite titles of, of a book is a book by John Owen uh, called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. That's a great title. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. I wouldn't encourage you to read it. It's, It's really difficult to make. No, I would encourage you to read it, but just give yourself time. But it's, isn't it a great title? The Death of Death in the Death of Christ? Well, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. The condemnation of condemnation in the condemnation of Christ. The condemnation of, of our sin which condemns us in the condemnation of Christ. Now, we've got to be clear what we mean when we use the word condemnation. Because when uh, some act of terrorism or flagrant racism happens uh, in our country today, you'll notice uh, politicians standing up and condemning. And they'll condemn the act. And what that means is they're, they're, they're saying something about the egregious evil nature of the act, and then they'll make some vow to bring the perpetrator to justice. Well, is that what God does? Is that what it means? Well, no, it means much more than that. See, God condemns sin all the way. So, in the cross of Christ, God doesn't just reveal the evil of sin, what it shows, what it deserves. He doesn't just promise to respond to sin uh, with justice. He actually renders the punishment, he, he applies the penalty, he executes the lawbreaker. It's not just talk, it's an act. It would be like a politician denouncing some terrorist act and then immediately publicly hanging the terrorist. That's the condemnation we're talking about. Because you see in the cross sin is not just revealed to be evil but the penalty is fully applied and justice is fully satisfied so that the sin in a sense is destroyed. It's taken care of completely nothing left to do in the cross of Christ God has condemned our sin in that way and he did that so you see precisely because Jesus was there bearing our sin our sin your mine was in that place and in that moment really and truly condemned The full penalty of the law was applied and the demand of the law in all of its fullness was completely satisfied. So that Paul can say in in Colossians 2.14, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands was canceled, set aside, being nailed to the cross. And it's not coming back down. It was nailed there once and for all. And that's why there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because for those who are in Christ Jesus, your condemnation was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's done. Forever. Now, why did God do that? That's what Paul gets on to in verse 4. Why did God do that? In order you've got to pay attention here again, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of, uh, some debate about this in, in the commentaries. You'll find people going, good commentators going a different direction. What exactly is Paul saying? Is he saying, A, that God condemned our sin in Jesus so that we personally might fulfill the law as we live a life of obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, is, is Paul saying here that we fulfill the law by our spirit-filled, righteous living? Is that what he wants us to see? Is that the Christian calling, right, to, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law? There, there are some who take it that way, and it's not heresy. And there are other places in the Bible that talk about right God saving us to make us holy and to make us zealous for good works. But I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here uh, because you, well, if you just look at the text, Paul is talking about the righteous requirement of the law. Well, do, do you know what the righteous requirement of the law is? It's love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the righteous requirement of the law. Well, do you know of any Christian in the history of Christianity who's able to say that they did that for five minutes, much less their entire lifetime? I don't. That person doesn't exist. You see, the... the, the righteous requirement of the law is do this and live and do it perfectly all the time without fail. So I, I don't believe that's what Paul's saying, and there's other clues in the text that would, that would suggest a different understanding. Notice, Paul doesn't say, this is, this is why we just, man, when you read your Bible, keep, pay attention to the words. Paul doesn't say that the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled by us He says, it will be fulfilled in us. That's a different way of thinking. And and, and notice also, the verb might be fulfilled is in the passive tense. In other words, we are the recipients of the action, not the doers. We're not the actors. We're the recipients. The actor then is God himself. God himself acts to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in us. Now, how does he do that? How does he do that? This is, this is just really beautiful gospel truth. What causes us to come into a state whereby the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us? And Just very quickly, the reason I think this matters... When, if we think about being saved as just a matter of having our sins forgiven, you're just getting half of the equation. It's not that just that our sins have been forgiven. The, the fact is, if you're a Christian, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you, so that it is not legal fiction when God says to, over you, right, innocent, righteous. It's not legal fiction. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you. How? Well, um, I'm going to use a little takeoff off uh, Aristotle's causes. I won't, I won't get into that. Um, but but let me just quickly say this. I'll use an illustration. So if you've been to my house, uh, you've seen my kitchen table. It, it's, a, it's a nice kitchen table. What caused... That table, what caused that table to be in my dining room? It wasn't a miracle. We didn't just get up one morning and shazam, there's a table. What there is, There's a cause, and there's a different way of thinking about cause, and that's what I want us to do. So just, just, just track very carefully with me, but we can talk about the material cause of that table. The material cause is that out of which a thing is made. If you ask, what is that piano made out of? Well, it's made out of it's made out of wood, and there's, there's some strings in there, and maybe some ivory. Uh, my table is made out of wood. So the material cause of my table, that out of which it is made, is wood. What is the material cause of our righteousness? What's it made out of? Well, the material cause of my righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it's made of. Jesus not only died as my substitute, Jesus lived as my substitute perfectly fulfilling the law in my place. Every moment, right? Loving the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, and every moment loving his neighbor as himself. And, and that is the material out of which my righteousness is formed. With John Bunyan, uh, in, in his book, um, Abounding Grace to the Chief of Sinners, talks about just wrestling with assurance and and, and sensing the the horrible sin, uh, even blasphemy that that belonged to him and, and, and just under absolute despair because of it until finally he said he was walking through a field and this sentence fell like heaven upon my heart. Thy righteousness is in heaven. Thy righteousness is in heaven. Jesus is your righteousness, John. That's what your righteousness is made of. That's the material cause. We could talk about the efficient cause, how something came to be. The efficient cause of my kitchen table is a carpenter. Uh, They say he was Amish. I don't know if that's true or just a way to sell tables, but uh, a carpenter who had a, you know, he had a, a lathe and a saw. He had a sander, and he knew how to use those things in order to craft my table. That's how the wood became my table. Well, how does Christ's righteousness become, how does Christ's obedience, let me say, how does Christ's obedient life, the material of my righteousness, how does that become my righteousness? Well, the efficient cause of Christ's obedient life becoming our righteousness is God's work of imputation, where God is freely and fully willing to impute The obedience of Jesus Christ to my and your life. All those who believe in Him. As Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake, God made Him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Imputation is the efficient cause. It's it's, it's how the the material of Christ's obedience is, is made into our righteousness. But then finally... How does that become my personal possession? We can talk about the instrumental cause. The instrumental cause is the means by which a thing is received. How did that table, being made from wood, being made by the carpenter, how did it become my table and come into my home, my possession? And the answer is, first of all, money, I had to pay for it. And secondly, my truck and trailer, I had to go pick it up and bring it home. That's the instrumental cause. What is the instrumental cause whereby the obedience of Jesus Christ actually comes into your personal possession? So you can say, it is mine. Not just a righteousness, but my righteousness. How do you personally come to receive and own the obedience of Christ as your righteousness and your fulfilling of the law? And the answer, of course, is by faith. Faith, it's not by money, it's without cost. So Paul will say in Philippians 3.8, I do not uh, have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. By faith in Christ, you see, the, the obedience of Jesus' life is made mine. And the law, in that sense, is fulfilled in me, in you. So Moose says this, the law's just demand is fulfilled in Christians, not through their own act of obedience, but through their incorporation into Christ by faith. He fulfilled the law, and in him, believers also fulfill the law perfectly. Perfectly. In grasping Christ by faith, people are accounted as really having done the law. Is that how you think of yourself? As someone who in Jesus Christ has really fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law? Because that's who you are. If you're a Christian, that's what's true of you. That's going to change how we think about living the Christian life. It's going to change how we think about ourselves as a Christian. You see, this this is why the essence of the Christian life is not a matter of doing things for God, but receiving things from God. The warp and woof of a Christian's walk is to receive all that God has done for you and accomplished for you in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then receiving all that walking by the power of the Holy Spirit in the paths of life, and we'll get into that in the following verses. But notice how Paul ends verse 4 with this definition of a child of God who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That is not a command to do something. It is God's gift to us in Jesus Christ. In the following verses, Paul is going to show us that the gift of the gospel is not just imputed righteousness, but an imparted spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. God himself indwelling us, leading us by the hand into our new life in Jesus Christ and assuring us that there will never be condemnation. Our, our salvation, friends, is it's from the Father through the Son by the ministry of the Holy Spirit all of God acting for all of our salvation. And it's glorious. It's, it's, it's so full and, and complete and finished. I, just two conversations I had this week. One with, with my brother Randy. and um, So close to death. And we were just talking about uh, what is our confidence? What do, we, what do we come with when we stand before the Lord? And, and I read to him from John 6 where Jesus says, this is the work that God requires of you. The work, that, the work that God requires is to believe on the one whom he has sent. That's what Jesus says. The work that God requires is to believe on the one whom he has sent. And, and, and Randy just whispered, I believe. I believe. And that's, you see, it's, it's faith that overcomes the world. It's by faith that we gain the victory. We believe, we receive, we say, yes, Lord. And, and by believing then united to Christ and so that Christ obedience is actually really and truly mine and I can stand before the judgment throne of God absolutely confident there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Why not? Because I believe in him. If, you, if you're afraid, if you're still afraid to die, this is the truth that needs to be applied. What has God done for you? Because when you grasp what God has actually done for you in Jesus Christ, there is no reason to fear dying. No reason to fear the judgment day. None. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you by grace and through faith. I stopped to see my friend Dave DeBoer. I got to know Dave 40 years ago at Trinity Christian Colleges. Uh, just a great kid from Oostburg, and uh, Dave is a member of Grace Fellowship now. Dave is dying of cancer. He's in hospice care. I stopped to see him Friday. And I I just asked him, you know, Dave, what's God been doing in your life? What What's he been teaching you through this last year particularly? You know what he said? Big smile on his face. He's there in his wheelchair. He's got his neck brace on. He said... There's nothing I need to do. My righteousness has already been done. It's all done. That is so good to know. Here's a man on the verge of death. It's all been done. It's all been done. Friends, that's the gospel. Is that what you believe? Is that your hope? Is that your confidence? Because that's the Christian faith. And by that faith, We now live in the glorious reign of the grace of God. And we can live with joy and peace in believing. May God grant it. Amen. Father in heaven, I thank you for the gospel of a God who not only justifies, but a God who sanctifies by the power of the Holy Spirit, a God who... Has robed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we can say, My righteousness is found in Him. And the law has been fulfilled in me as I am in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would live then as as people who understand and believe the gospel. That we would, Lord, not be afraid to die. We wouldn't be afraid of condemnation. Because the righteousness of Christ is given to us and the law has been fulfilled in us. And Father, I pray that being here this morning who does not understand these things and and, uh, Lord is struggling to live the Christian life but does not understand in truth the Christian gospel, I just pray that today, oh God, you would give them that peace that comes from believing, the joy and peace that comes from knowing that our only hope is Jesus Christ himself in his life and in his death. Father, bless us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and just sing of our hope in Jesus Christ, our hope in life and death. Father, the Lord who sent his son Jesus Christ and the spirit who indwells us, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.